You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. To try and thwart the Turks, Aaron Aronson led a spy ring of primarily his family to supply information to the British who were fighting the Turks in World War I. Aaron Aronson was a very successful and decorated agronomist. That means one who knows the science of the, la- of the land, understands the ground very well, whose discoveries were celebrated the world over. But whatever he could do to yield produce from the, ground, the ground from the dry Israeli soil seemed to be pointless as long as the slothful and brutish Ottoman regime ruled the land. They whisper it all over Turkey. It sounds so romantic and perky. Hardly romantic was the suffering of the Jews under the Turks. They suffered expulsions and a host of other troubles and were aware of how the Armenians had been annihilated by the Turks. This is sometimes known as the Armenian Genocide, referring to the systematic mass murder and ethnic cleansing of around one million ethnic Armenians by the Ottoman government during World War I. The only hope the Zionists concluded they had was to wrest Palestine for themselves and for this to get it away from the Turks. They would need the British. Aronson and his family and a team of researchers were given free movement throughout the land because of their organizing anti-locust campaigns. They capitalized on this freedom and slipped through Turkish lines to Egypt to report to the British about their observations of the Turkish military. They were spies. The British were not interested in Jewish spies. I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense to them. First of all, the British did not really understand what Jews were doing in Palestine in the first place. And they certainly had no idea what kind of spies are these if they didn't even want to be paid for their espionage. I mean, after all, ay 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 ay. Why else would a spy spy if not either because you're a patriot or you wish to be handsomely remunerated? The Aronsons didn't want to do either. They just wanted to get the Turks out of the land of Palestine. In the autumn of 1916, Aaron Aronson acquired information that the Turks were gathering troops in order to invade the most important British asset, which was, of course, the Suez Canal. The Brits could not afford to lose the Suez Canal. It would interrupted the entire world. So Aronson had to alert the British and also inform them that if the land were not liberated soon, then the residents may not survive the famine that was ravaging the land. Aronson figured that for this, he would need to speak to the British directly in Britain. But how could he pull this off? Because all of his attempts to speak to the British in Egypt were not paid attention to. They didn't take him seriously. What kind of spies are these? who don't want to get spied for being spies. So Aronson convinced the Turkish army commander that because of an impending locust invasion, he needed to travel to Germany to carry out research on sesame-rich in oil. 
Once in Germany, he traveled to neutral Copenhagen, and there, through the Zionist Bureau, they worked out a plan for him to travel to England without appearing to have defected from Ottoman control. Now, of course, if he would have appeared to have been defected, if he would have defected, and it wouldn't look like he was doing something that was in the interest of Britain, then he would have put his family in Israel in tremendous risk. So he had to do this in a way that it looked like he was remaining a loyal Ottoman servant and doing no service whatsoever for the British. So he set sail from Copenhagen for the United States in October 1916. En route by prearrangement, a British destroyer intercepted the ship and quote-unquote arrested Aronson as an Ottoman citizen and brought him to Britain. Within hours of his arrival in Britain, he was speaking to the head of Scotland Yard. Aronson argued that Turkey would be vulnerable to an attack from Palestine. The British attack through Gallipoli was defeated, the sole victory of the Ottomans in World War I, a failure that would haunt Winston Churchill the rest of his days. The British were impressed by Aronson's reports and sent him to Egypt to report to the military commanders there, who this time afforded him their fullest attention. While in London, Aronson met with key British political figures and he impressed them with his Zionist idealism. This will soon bear important fruit vis-a-vis the Balfour Declaration. The Neely Organization, as the Jewish spy organization was called, which stands for, in English, the eternal one of Israel will not prove false. This is a verse in Samuel. Netzach Yisrael lo worked for the next eight months under the very noses of the Turks. Aronson's sister Sarah and an associate directed the effort, collecting extensive information on Ottoman military bases and on Ottoman army movement, and they transmitted their information to a British frigate that anchored in the Mediterranean off the coast of Atlit, which is near Haifa, every two weeks at nightfall. They would blink lights and send a coded message. The intelligence was of critical importance to the British. When, at, when General, I think it was General, when Officer Allenby, certainly Sir Allenby, named of course after the major boulevard in Tel Aviv, assumed command of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force in the spring of 1917, he asked the Neely spies for particulars on Turkish defenses around Beersheba, because that was the site of his intended offensive. Sarah and her associate set about fulfilling this assignment. Their dispatches included vital data on the weather, on the location of water sources, malarial swamps, and on the precise condition of every known route to Beersheba in the neg of the southern region of Israel. It was daring work for Neely's spies that enabled Allenby to be so effective. Their espionage came to an end in September of 1917 when one of the Neely carrier pigeons fell into the hands of the Turks. Most of the ring was tortured and murdered. Sarah Aronson had been captured and tortured for four consecutive days. She revealed nothing. And then the Turks said they're going to bring her up to Nazareth, where they really knew how to torture. This wily spy, Sarah Aronson, explained to her torturers that her dress was ripped, she was bloody, she was a mess, and she needed to go home and get changed. And they trusted her. So they escorted her to her home, And then when she was home, she said she had to go to the bathroom. And she walked into the bathroom where she had snuck in a pistol and committed suicide. But it wasn't the most effective case. 
and she only died two days later from her wound. When Aaron Aronson, who was in Britain, heard about his sister's fate, this spurred him by grief and a determination to rid Palestine of Turkish rule. He thus devoted himself to persuading the British government to grant the Jews a national home in Palestine. Aronson's knowledge of the land and of Palestine, of its farmers, of its pioneers, and of his own family's brave contribution to the Allied cause, stood him in good stead in the months to come. When the Declaration of British Support for a National Home in Palestine was being drafted, for the signature of the Foreign Secretary, A.J. Balfour, it was Aronson's voice and the voice of his sister, Sarah, and the other members of the Neely Group that were very persuasive voices. Although only a handful of Palestinian Jews knew were aware of Neely's activities, it was only the imminent British capture of Jerusalem that saved the old settlement from mass arrests and possible mass hangings and deportations. There we go. He was a general. When General Sir Edmund Allenby of Palestine, when his offensive was imminent, what would be known as the Battle of Megiddo, or Armageddon, the British War Cabinet felt an urgent need to declare British future control over Palestine. There was also that remote possibility that the Turks would extricate themselves from World War I and this way avoid losing Palestine to the British. Having already explained the importance of the Arons inspiring and assisting the British in Palestine, we now return to Weizmann in England and other necessary factors that would bring about the eventuality of the Balfour Declaration. World War I, Britain had a critical shortage of acetone, which was necessary to fire artillery. Yes, it's also necessary to remove nail polish. Previously, it had been supplied to Germany, pardon me, previously Britain had acquired it from Germany, who extracted from local minerals. But expecting Germany to give acetone to their enemy, Britain was an unrealistic and ridiculous expectation. It's somewhat akin to the story which some say may be urban myth, that when the L was sold as scrap metal to Japan, L is the elevated subway, E-L, L, elevated line. When the subway was sold as scrap metal to, to Japan, it made its way back to America in the form of bullets. It's not clear if this is an urban myth, but factually, it can't be disproven. The timing is right, as the 6th Avenue line, the 6th Avenue L, was dismantled in the 1930s. In other words, the L was the elevated train, which later went subway, it went underground, become the subway from elevated. So Britain desperately needs acetone. It cannot get it from Germany. And it can't get it from the United States because, because of the war, there were U-boats which didn't allow passage of armament from America arriving in Britain. The young secretary of the Navy, his name was Winston Churchill, had heard of a chemist in Manchester. Churchill's very first words to Weizmann were, we need 30,000 tons of acetone. Can you make it? So instead of doing the logical, which would have been to faint, Weizmann began to work. And he worked and he worked and he worked. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Around the clock. And he figured out a way how to create acetone by fermenting grains and even chestnuts. Weizmann worked day and night to reproduce mass quantities. Soon the British were producing 90,000 gallons a year of breweries and distilleries that had been commandeered by the government. Weizmann gave the British government rights to his development without charging anything, 
resulting in him quickly being appointed to be the head of development of the British Royal Navy Laboratory, or I guess, laboratory. Weizmann's scientific impact and position in the military brought him into working relationships with senior administrative officials in London. He became very close with the young Winston Churchill, then who was the Lord of the Admiralty, and with David Lloyd George, who was the Minister of Munitions. Weizmann's practical nature, his brilliant mind, his headstrong idealism, also enabled him to get the support of other key British players, such as Lord Arthur James Balfour, Home Secretary Herbert Samuel, and expert on Turkish affairs, Sir Mark Sykes. December 1916, Lloyd George becomes the Prime Minister, and he names Arthur Balfour as his Foreign Secretary. There is also a second narrative of how Weizmann was able to have access to the government, which goes like this. Independent of these good connections, uh, Weizmann had a different avenue via Herbert Samuel, or first Viscount Samuel, who was a nominally observant Jew. He became an atheist in university exposed to the study of Darwinism. Nonetheless, he still observed Shabbos, keeping Shabbat at home, and observed Kashrut at home to please his wife. My source is Wikipedia. And he arranged for Weizmann to meet Lloyd George. Although Samuel never let it be known publicly, he sympathized with the Zionist cause. Weizmann's development of acetone had been invaluable to the United Kingdom, and David Lloyd George, who was the Minister of Munitions, offered him a reward. Weizmann said, Don't give me anything, but I would like you to do something for my people. And that was the origin of the Balfour Declaration. Weizmann's genius was convincing the British that to establish Jewish home in Palestine was not in Jewish interest or in Zionist interest. It was in the British interest. But now let's dive deeper to what led to, to be the turning point, this Balfour Declaration, the turning point in the birth of Israel. The architects of the Balfour Declaration liked the idea of an, liked the idea of a national home for the Jews in Palestine, not because of their sympathy with Zionism, but as a means of keeping the down the number of Jews in Britain. It was Balfour's government in 1904, more than 13 years before the Declaration, had introduced the Aliens Bill in order to more strictly control immigration into Britain. Because, as we know, there were waves of immigration associated with the violent anti-Semitic outbreaks in Russia that happened in the early years of the century, before the turn of the century, and then also with the imposition of conscription during the Russo-Japanese War. The fear in Britain was that if the persecution in Russia got worse, and why in the world shouldn't it, the Jews might move in large numbers, perhaps in millions, to the West, and then the West would be swamped with poor Jews, which nobody wanted. Britain feared that if America, which had absorbed the overwhelming majority, might shut its doors in 1905 and institute immigration restrictions, and then these Jews would then head to Britain. And that's what Balfour's Aliens Act was aimed at stopping. But Balfour backed His Majesty's government on the second reading of the Aliens Bill, the bill that kept the Jews out of Britain. But, ay 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 Balfour, the author of these two bills, was at the same time somewhat anti-Semitic where Britain was concerned, and he certainly had no particular interest or affection for Jews, yet he was philo-Semitic where the world was concerned. And he spoke of the bigotry and oppression of the Jews and what they had faced and suffered 
and foreign countries. Balfour's niece and biographer recalled, quote, I remember in childhood imbibing from him the idea that Christian religion and civilization owes to Judaism an immeasurable debt that has been shamefully not been repaid. And she continues, The treatment of the, Jew, the race of Jews has been a disgrace to Christendom, a disgrace which tarnishes the face of Christianity. And she goes on and on, but I will spare you. The foreign secretary had been nurtured on the Bible, and his extensive study of Jewish history had filled him with remorse over Christensen's appalling treatment of the Jews. He felt it would be best for all to afford them asylum in their own native land, and certainly not in the land of Britain. Hence, as much as he did not want the Jews to come to Britain, Balfour nonetheless felt guilty about what they had suffered and is well aware of the danger that they were in. He was looking as early as 1903 for a place where they could flee from Eastern Europe and not go to Britain. It was in that year the government offered the Zionists the land in East Africa for settlement. As we've already explained, East Africa means Uganda, even though I'm not convinced it's totally Uganda. It might actually be Nigeria, but it was very far from the land of Israel. Balfour met Weizmann in Manchester in 1906. Balfour was running for office and he spoke for over an hour with Weizmann. Balfour was at a loss as to why the offer of the land in East Africa was not accepted by the Jews. Why would they reject an opportunity to have their own land? And Weizmann explained to him why he and the Russian delegates were not interested in having land anywhere but the land of Israel. And again, but Balfour couldn't understand. Why not? I'm offering you land. And, Bal and Weizmann replied, Mr. Balfour, if you were offered Paris instead of London, would you take it? And Balfour countered, but London is our, is our own. And Weizmann counter-countered, Jerusalem was our own land when London was but, a was but a marsh. Balfour was impressed by this, very powerfully impressed. And that was when the seed of the Balfour Declaration was sown. At that point, Balfour became converted to the idea of Zion and Palestine. Their friendship was renewed between Weizmann and Balfour was renewed in 1917. And like we said, Balfour was a very powerful man in Britain. The real motivator for the British now was to win over world Jewry, who by and large were Zionistically inclined. The reason why this was important for Britain was because they felt that the Jews could play a role in the most vital British interest. It was also the interest of France, which was to keep Russia in the war for as long as possible and to get America committed to the war as fast as possible. Zionism seemed to be a promising card to play for this goal. And we shall explain. Public opinion was divided about the war, and the Jews were assumed to have a powerful role in forming opinion. The February Revolution in 1917, in Russia, of course, had emancipated Russians, Russia's Jews, and they were now a factor in public opinion. And in America, Zionism's strength was only rising. By and large, American Jewry was very opposed to enter into the war, which would include an alliance with Russia's Nicholas II. The Jews of America, many of which were from Russian origins, wanted nothing to do with a war with a, with a war that would be beneficial for a czar, understandably. The Jewish antipathy to Russia was damaging to the Allied war effort, both in the banking and also in the press. The February Revolution removed the principal cause of Jewish aversion to the Allied side, 
but still Jewish support was not certain. So the British thought that if they could make Palestine a Jewish home, that would be dear to American Jewry, and that would swing the, un the unified block of support behind the Allies. Prime Minister David Lloyd George was prepared to support the plan for Jewish homeland, but he wanted to make sure that there would be no opposition from the West. West means, of course, America. President Wilson had not yet bought in, and Weizmann suggested that Louis Brandeis, who was a man of national promise in the United States, and in 1916 became the first Jewish Supreme Court Justice, make the case. Brandeis, of course, was named after Brandeis University, and Brandeis University was a premier school, still is, which was created to create a top-tier education to Jews, for Jews, who were not allowed to go into other colleges because of uh, quotas that forbade them from entering. And Brandeis's policy, Brandeis I'm referring to now the university, was that neither the students nor the faculty should be based on quotas of genetic, ethnic, or economic distribution. But this school has always benefited from, benefited from very large Jewish and philanthropy, and you'll find so many buildings and hallways and windows and doors that have endowed by Jewish uh, charities or individuals. And the quip goes in Brandeis that if you stand still for too long, if you're just stationary for a few seconds, you'll get a plaque put on you. So Wilson rejected, uh, who had rejected the original draft, now was much, Britain toned it down, and Wilson was in. The British War Cabinet had a decisive meeting on October 31st. This would be, of course, 1917. And now with Wilson's approval, which Brandeis had fantastically secured, a total turnabout in just one fortnight, fortnight, the declaration was assured. For some odd reason, this reminds me of the all-male ensemble, 08 Chorus, rendition of Dvorak's new world symphony, Going Home. We will talk again in our future episode. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating, as this really helps us. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.